This is the real life story of how I quit my awesome job as a clinical pharmacist of 11 years with no real plan of what I do next. I had a vague notion that I wanted something different to make a greater impact and to use different parts of my brain. I started talking to friends, then friends of friends, and so on and so forth. Now I'm discovering some brilliant career pivots proving that there is life after clinical pharmacy and I wanted to share my journey with you. This is Career Reconstituted, how these pharmacists turn their job into a dream job, and I'm your host, Monica Mehta. Hi, everyone. I'm so delighted to have Dr. Robert Witcher as our guest today. He currently works as an analyst, combining clinical work with behind-the-scenes technical programming, but he first started on the fast track to the top in clinical pharmacy. After graduating from pharmacy school, Robert completed postgraduate residency training at New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City, then stayed on for a second year to complete a critical care specialty residency. He was well known around the hospital for burning the midnight oil, delivering highly effective education programs like his grand rounds on the management of sepsis, and completing research projects such as effects of early mobilization on sedation practices in the neuro ICU. Robert was well on his way to a brilliant career as an ICU pharmacist when he made his first pivot into pediatrics, taking a position as a pediatric critical care pharmacist. As for his bigger pivot, I'll leave that to our conversation. Robert is clearly smart, but he's also well-rounded, a biker, a semi-professional choir singer, and more recently a dad. It's a privilege to speak with him today, so let's dive in. Robert, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything you want to say or ask right off the bat? No, I'm, I'm super excited to be here and honored to be a guest on your show. Um, we've gone through a lot of uh, chapters of life together, and I'm very excited to be a part of this project with you. I'm so excited to have you as well. But before we begin going down that journey, I want to ask you the standard nerdy pharmacy question, which is, if you could be any drug, what would you be and why? Yeah, um, I think I'd have to be dexmedetomidine, um, especially as a critical care pharmacist. I think this is a fun, versatile drug. Um, It's great sedative, has fun receptor activity. Um, And my fun fact is that uh, my dog's name is Dex and is named after dexmedetomidine. Oh, so it's not dexamethasone? It is not dexamethasone. (laughs) No, he'll get mad if you say that. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I am not a corticosteroid. (laughs) (laughs) So Robert, if you or at a dinner party and someone asks you, what do you do? What's your answer to that? Yeah, my, my first answer is that I'm a pharmacist, um, which depending on their response to that might lead to a, a few different answers for that. And if you have like a two minute elevator ride with someone and they ask that at the bottom of the floor and you have to go to the top, what's your two minute answer? Yeah, so now I would say that I work probably in healthcare informatics um, and my background as a clinical pharmacist, I work to help kind of optimize the pharmacy and medication systems of electronic medical records for one specific hospital. Um, so basically making it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing. Yeah, I feel like maybe, is there like a perfect example to tell someone who they don't work in a hospital and they don't work in pharmacy or medicine at all and they have no idea? Mm-hmm. Like it's your gra- yeah. friend's grandmother? <laughs> yeah, I think using a simple example like Tylenol, um, you know, whether or not that's 
what they're searching for, a provider is searching for when they're trying to order Tylenol, or if they can order the wrong dose, like can they order, you know, a hundred times more than what you should be taking? Um, and kind of how does the system interact with a provider to help them make the right choice? Um, so it could be anything from silly things like dose buttons or defaults to the actual alerts that kind of fire in the background that use some of the patient's demographic or clinical information to help make the right choice. Mm-hmm. And you recently, so in New York State, they're working to make Narcan much more available. And you recently worked on a project specifically to make Narcan available when appropriate. Can you tell everyone a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a, a fun project that I think was a, a fast turnaround project. But um, you have to give credit to New York State for trying to, to make uh, the epidemic uh, ease the strains of the epidemic. Um, so basically what they were trying to do is that patients that were prescribed opioids or otherwise at high risk for an opioid overdose, they wanted a, a prompt to provide uh, Narcan to these patients at discharge also. Um, so we were able to build a pretty complex alert that looked at both patient characteristics, but also what medications are being prescribed at discharge um, to then prompt the provider to order uh, Narcan. And so this could be anything from a patient with a prior overdose um, that's being prescribed opioids now, um, or if they're being prescribed uh, long-acting opioids or even a short-acting opioid and another sedative drug like a benzo. Um, we were looking at those things to see uh, if we could fire a, a alert that would include Narcan in their orders that they were queuing up. Um, and some of the challenge with that is, you know, fine-tuning the criteria that these alerts fire on, um, but also making it not fire too often for patients that don't need it. Um, so we were able to use a look back period to see if a provider had already given the patient Narcan in the past year and suppress that alert in that case. Um, so really trying to make this like a perfect, uh, you know, true positive alert firing at the right time um, to help get some of these, you know, life-saving drugs to, to patients and include that with some education for patients too. Um, so best we can to try to get that Narcan in their hands. And would that trigger an electronic prescription to an outpatient pharmacy where they would get their Narcan? Yeah, so basically the way the alert worked um, and the sequence of kind of ordering is the provider would queue up some outpatient orders, you know, normal patient uh, that's going for discharge prescriptions at like a CVS. Um, and if they met those clinical criteria, either like a past history of substance abuse or overdose or the current medications for, uh, you know, triggering for needing Narcan, then as soon as they tried to sign those orders, it would pop up an alert that would prompt them to include that Narcan order in that current list of uh, medications that they were prescribing. So that would go across mm -hmm. kind of in that same bundle of medications uh, to be included with those. Yeah. And I guess the curious question I have, like you come from a setting where you get to study every intervention you make, like when you're working in the ICU. And this is something that would be really hard to study to see if it led to better outcomes. Is there a way to look at outcomes associated with this intervention you made? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting part, particularly of healthcare informatics now is like we have all of this data. So it's anything from like, you know, an automatic dispensing system cabinet pull um, to electronic discharge prescriptions to what was ordered inpatient. Um, we have so much data and to be able to use that data to look at how your you know, system is functioning, frankly, um, it could be, you know, looking at the efficacy of an alert, but generally speaking, looking at broader things. Um, I think that's kind of where we are now, where we're starting to be able to like harness that data and use it to make good choices. 
Um, and some systems have done a really good job of kind of making that more easily available to both people like me, analysts kind of on a backside rule, but also clinicians when they're kind of looking at problems that might be happening in their own kind of microcosm of clinical care. Um, so I, I think that's a, a big thing that probably needs more attention focused on it now um, and does take a lot of manpower to enable, but the power that comes with that is you know profound um, to be able mm -hmm. to say exactly how, like in this specific example, exactly how your alert is behaving. Um, so it could be a simple thing like um, the first button, you know, isn't the most commonly chosen button. So maybe you reorder those buttons and it makes it easier for the provider to do the right thing. Um, or it could be that you're missing a whole patient population that maybe you thought you were, you know, hitting. Um, but you can see that with some big data. And, and I think we're starting to get to a good place where you can kind of query the data to understand those impacts. Um, but it would be very nice if it was uh, a little more sometimes user-friendly, sometimes takes less maintenance, um, but that's a, a big area that I think is a lot of fun to play with, honestly. Have you read the book Nudge by Sunstein? He won a Nobel Prize for his work in this. No, I haven't. Um, so what, you're, what you just said reminded me of his work because it's like behavioral economics. If you make a button, like de a default something, or you make a button easier to push, then they're more likely mm -hmm. to do it. So like, a silly example is if you put your toothpaste on your toothbrush at night and you wake up and you go to the bathroom and you just have to put it in your mouth, that's like a nudge towards brushing your teeth. Um, yeah. Of course, it would collect dust. So that's another great example. <laughs> but yeah, so nudging people so they could easily do the right thing, that sounds like a big part of your work. It's a huge part of it. So like in this Narcan example, you know, whether or not that prescription was defaulted to be included versus was, you know, an option for a provider to then opt into. So, you know, those obviously are going to have very different outcomes. And a big struggle with this is sometimes, you know, an analyst or even, you know, somebody who bridges the gap between the IT world and clinical world is mm -hmm. really understanding the provider's workflow and, and mindset even to know how they're going to interact with the alert. Because more often than not, like we talk about this alert fatigue problem. Um, and so if your alert is in the slightest bit annoying, <laughs> the likelihood of them interacting with it more meaningfully is probably low. Um, so the, that's where some of those defaults come into, you know, if, if they had to click yes to Narcan when it's already appropriate to be including Narcan, um, that's probably not the best use of that alert. Um, so yeah, it's interesting when you talk about behavioral economics and how that kind of plays into this, but it, it feels very much like that, like understanding their mindset, mm -hmm. willingness to, you know, receive an alert at a particular point in time. Well, that's why you having been a clinical pharmacist make you so much better at being a, an EHR analyst and informatic, clinical informaticist. Um, <laughs> are you a unicorn? Like, are there other people, your colleagues who have PGY1, PGY2 training and clinical experience? Yeah, I do think a, a PGY2 trained um, non-informatics pharmacist, I think is, is um, unicorn, I think is maybe overselling it a bit. I think there are a lot of large hospitals that do have one or two of, of people with kind of my experience or training. Um, I will say most teams seem to have a good split between pharmacists and people with pharmacy experience. So whether or not those are pharmacy techs or have just been working in healthcare long enough to have IT experience. So there's always going to be a pharmacist kind of working on this type of backend work. And I think that's critical. Um, but to yeah, have that one step further where you either have training or, you know, experience kind of mm -hmm. bedside or you know, working in a dispensing pharmacy, I think can really change 
how you receive a question from you know, somebody on the hospital operations side and where you can think to ask some questions or you might think of a different tool than they were thinking of initially. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where I do get a lot of satisfaction for my job. And I and people ask me um, if, you know, I still feel like I'm a clinical pharmacist or if I feel like I'm using my clinical knowledge. Um, and I do. So I'm, I'm happy that, you know, I've had this background and I'm able to use that to help kind of craft some of the solutions that I've uh, been able to work on. Um, but yeah, I do think it's probably less than 10% of analysts in my role that have that type of experience. Have you got to make a dexmedetomidine order set yet? <laughs> we do have some ICU and sedation related order sets yet. So uh, that's definitely stuff that we work on. Um, it's always always fun and dex is always in the room usually when I'm working on stuff. So, <laughs> so that makes me wonder, like, is this a pivot or is this an evolution? for you or a little? Yeah, that's a really good question. Like, I don't think it's a left turn. Um, I think if anything, it's, you know, a a lane change on a big highway (laughs) is probably how I would describe it. Um, You know, I I spoke a little bit about using my clinical background. So I I don't feel like that's, you know, something that I've closed a book on um, and have moved, moved away from. So I do think I'm using that background a lot. I'm still working in healthcare and I'm still working on a lot of the same things that I enjoyed from the clinical perspective, which was sometimes like operational efficiency um, and med safety, I think is a big thing. Um, and yeah. policy and protocol writing, um, you know, using the, the EHR to implement some of those policies that I worked on on the clinical side. So um, yeah, I think I'm a few lanes over from the clinical pharmacy world, um, but I don't know that I would call this a, a full pivot. Um, I think you're right mm-hmm. that this probably is better as an evolution. Well, what prompted you to change highways? Um, <laughs> was it was it like a gradual thing? Was it exposure that planted a seed? Was there a day where you were like in the middle of the ICU and you said, enough? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of answers to that question. And now that I've been out of clinical practice for so long, I, I do think I've had time to massage through some of that. Um, I think I always had a passion for med safety and like operational efficiency, those kinds of concepts, um, like particularly med safety. I think working in the ICU, you, you know, just see the stakes of any mistake. Um, and then no less working in the pediatric ICU where often there's just, you know, no data, you know, the EHRs are not built to support those out of the box, that type of environment out of the box. Um, so I think I was always like tuned in to that. Um, and so for that reason, you know, working on projects to improve safety or, you know, policies, protocols, education in the ICU, um, I think that was always a big thing. And even along those lines over my career, I appreciated kind of having a broader and broader scope as I moved through positions. Um, so, you know, in residency or as a pharmacy student, even you're working on one patient or a handful of patients to then owning a whole unit and then my first job was owning all the critical care units, um, the pediatric critical care units versus all of pediatrics. Um, so broadening that scope, I think it always been interesting to me where you can use your experience to have a bigger impact. Um, and I see that IT transition as just kind of a continuation of that where I'm able to use that background to then influence hopefully a whole system um, more so than just you know a service line. Um, so I think, that's one thing that like led this to be a relatively frictionless transition. 
Um, mm -hmm. And then I will say clinical pharmacy can be hard. Um, I think working in critical care can be difficult. You know, we talk about burnout, but I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, I don't think residency trainings, at least when I went through it 10 years ago, included enough kind of emotional support and coping skills to deal with some of this. Um, so I think that did wear on me over time and working in a pediatric mm -hmm. ICU certainly took its toll on me. Um, you know, when you don't have time off service um, and maybe don't have the same kind of support environment to be able to deal with some of the difficult days that you have um, makes it challenging to see a full career in clinical pharmacy. Um, so I think yeah. those, those two things kind of led me to be open to a new experience. Um, but I was a little like, it was a little fortuitous also that I had worked on some IT related things during my clinical practice. So I kind of got to see this IT side um, mm -hmm. and make really good connections with some of these other analysts that now I work with. Um, and there was an opening on the, the team that I work on and um, had some open conversations that it wasn't initially for me, I didn't know that I was you know, interested until I started talking to them more and more and um, found it to be a really great transition that was meeting a lot of the needs that I had at the time um, mm -hmm. and really haven't looked back. Um, it's been a really fun transition for me. So it's one part kind of substrate, and we'll talk about that. It's one part experience as a clinical pharmacist, and it's one part there's an opening in something that you've tink been tinkering with, and, and you seize that opportunity. Um, what about, okay, so obviously pharmacists are geared or taught that you go into retail or you go into hospital. Is that part of the conversation now with pharmacy students and pharmacy residents that being an IT pharmacist is a thing? Uh, it was not at all uh, when I went through pharmacy school and some of residency. Um, you know, we had some IT pharmacist exposure in residency, but I don't think I at all understood what they did, even probably on a superficial level. Um, yeah, I don't think that I received any education in pharmacy school really about this. Um, mm -hmm. I, I hope that it's a more common thing now. And I think the fact that, you know, IT or informatics residencies are expanding is a big sign that that's, you know, a new career option for folks. Um, and frankly, our world is becoming, you know, more technology and IT focused. So I think it's inevitable that kind of we'll shift towards that anyways, and people might be thinking about that more and more. Um, so yeah, I'm hopeful for the future that people think about this a little bit more, but I, I don't think that was a career path that I, you know, would have considered 15 years ago. Um, let alone even kind of realized was an option. So if you have, you know, a pharmacy student who's the right substrate, and when I say that, I mean like kind of keen on computers, you like to tinker around with them, um, and you like logic, because um, a lot of this stuff is just logic, and, yeah. and you think you may want to go down this route, what are your options? Is there like a PGY-1? Do you have to do a general PGY-1 and then a PGY-2 in informatics? What if you don't want to do a residency? Can you still get in the field? Yeah. So I think probably the most traditional path forward would be to do a PGY-2 in informatics. Um, and that, you know, like any other residency, you really get the, the deep exposure and a pretty intense year to a lot of environments. Um, and I think you could walk away with that and probably step into most informatics positions. Um, there's probably a split between kind of the operational side and optimizing things like dispensing cabinets or, you know, using robots in a pharmacy um, versus kind of my side that works more on the software of things. Um, 
so that's probably the most traditional path. Um, but I don't think that's the only path. Um, I have plenty of colleagues now that that are either PGY1 trained or don't have a residency that work on med safety projects. And I work very closely with on the implementation of IT related uh, projects. So they might come to us with the kind of the core question, but they have enough experience that they can help craft and even test the solution um, or look at data to help, you know, say this is where we should be, you know, improving or focusing our attention. Um, so I think there's plenty of opportunities where you could get into this um, as a non-residency trained pharmacist. Um, yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunity in a few different routes. It kind of mirrors the whole like IT sector in general, where like all the disruptors, like, you know, you drop out of college, you don't need to go to get a college degree to like be a programmer and create a, you know, multinational corporation like Apple and Microsoft and that sort of thing. And you show up to board meetings and hoodies. So I feel like, you know, pharmacy informatics is kind of, you know, you, you don't need a white coat, you don't need a PGY2, you don't need a board certification, you just have to have a knowledge mm -hmm. and skill, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and maybe some of that is because it's, it's certainly not in its infancy, but um, maybe it hasn't been formalized the same way that, you know, clinical pharmacy has, um, mm -hmm. where there's a much longer history of clinical pharmacy. Um, but yeah, it, it does, in a lot of ways, feel nice to have a more casual environment at times. Um, yeah, where your physical appearance might not be something that you have to focus on uh, every day because you're not, you know, patient or provider or client facing. Um, yeah, but there are plenty of mm -hmm. boardroom meetings with IT folks in it still, and I see a lot of suits still walking around the office. So there's still still mm -hmm. that environment. <laughs> Is there any like specific entree to get into this field? Like, what do you need to showcase about yourself to go into informatics? Yeah, I think especially if you come from, you know, a pharmacist background or a clinical pharmacist background, um, I think just being able to learn about new systems is the biggest skill that you can have. Um, when I transitioned into this job, uh, they knew that they could train me on all the technical aspects. Um, so they, they knew that I can do that part, but having that clinical skill and clinical background and acumen is something that's much harder to train and requires experience. Do you need to apply for jobs in the hospital setting to be a pharmacy IT clinician, or do you need to apply to a company like electronic medical record company? Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of different routes you could take. Um, so my particular route was to stay in the hospital system. Um, so I think that's where probably a lot of people are employed. Um, and I think there's some confusion around kind of who your actual employer is in that environment sometimes. Um, so like my specific job is that I work uh, for an academic medical center, but they basically have contracted to use a specific software company as their electronic health record system. Um, so I help apply that software to the needs of the institution. Um, so like my only responsibility is to that, you know, academic medical center. Um, so that's my specific job. Um, but you can work directly for these electronic systems, um, the software companies themselves, and work on developing the tools that they offer to hospitals to use. Um, so those are some routes as well. Um, there's kind of and an intermediary. are there clinical pharmacists that do seek employment directly from the software companies? There are, yeah. I would say a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the people that work for those software companies are probably more computer programmers um, some clinicians, um, 
but uh, they do have uh, clinicians that are on their teams. And I know, you know, when we ask for development for certain things, um, we're normally talking to a pharmacist and oftentimes they do have clinical experience as well. What are the big software companies in this space right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there yeah, five think, big ones? Yeah, it's hard to deny that Epic is probably the biggest. Um, and Cerner is another uh, big system. And there's probably a handful of others that kind of compete with those as well. But I think by far and large, um, Epic is is the biggest. And Robert, so is ph- pharmacy informatics a field dominated by men? Do you see that many women in it? Are more women getting into it? And why do you think that there's a gender aspect to it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I think I see some diversity. I think some of that is working at a hospital in a large urban environment. Uh, so I think some of that's natural to see both cultural and gender diversity. Um, but I think there are a lot of women in pharmacists, particularly in clinical pharmacy. Um, so I think it might you know, come more naturally with that, um, that there are more women in, in pharmacy also, or pharmacy informatics. Um, that might just be my experience also. I haven't actually looked at data on that. Um, your question of the kind of core reason for that is really interesting. I don't know that I have a, a theory on that. I'm curious if you know you know of any data or thought about this as well. I mean, I think that it's more nurture than nature. I think that you know, from a young age, the kind of toys and conditioning that men receive versus women play a role in how many women go into engineering and math and computer science and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, probably spill over from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to get back to substrate. Like, did you tinker around with computers when you were little? I did. Yeah. I would not have considered myself like a technology nerd though. Um, I will admit that I went to a math science and technology high school. Um, so <laughs> like the, I can't, can't hide that. Um, but I think I was always much more on the math and science end of things. Um, certainly enjoyed technology. Um, and even now I don't like, I don't know coding. That's not a part of my job. I don't do computer programming. Um, I do think the big electronic health systems, um, kind of make it easy to, for lack of a better term, plug and play with some of their tools. Um, so that is a common question, I guess, that I get is like, do I write code for, you know, these things that I'm working on and, and I don't, um, I'm fortunate to have had the experience that I kind of know how to manipulate the system. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that I'm like a, uh, computer science nerd, um, in that way. <laughs> Do you want to learn programming? Is that what is something that you might be interested in for the next phase of your career? Yeah, I think it would help a lot, um, particularly in some of the data analytics components. So that's kind of going back to what I was talking about before, where we have like all of this raw data, but you really have to have somebody help, you know, manipulate it to make it actionable or even, you know, interpretable. Um, so that's a skill set that I admittedly do not have. You know, I rely on a lot of our other teams to to help craft those things, um, where then we can look at the efficacy of you know, alerts or kind of where we're needing to focus attention. Um, so I think it could help a lot if I did have some of those skills. Um, and it's interesting to see some of our senior leaders that do have those skills. Maybe they don't use it on a daily basis, but, you know, they might look at a query or a line of code and are able to kind of say, you know, tweak this, do that, um, add this to be able to, you know, look at the data or pull 
a data set more easily that's more reflective of the question. Um, so I think that would help a lot with data, data analytics. Um, but I've also seen like a lot of really interesting ideas that people did as homegrown things. So, you know, making kind mm -hmm. of online programs that helps, you know, integrate with their system and they can solve a problem homegrown instead of needing to rely on, you know, a big EHR system to develop things on their own. Um, yeah, there like the Vancomycin are... AUC monitoring yeah. tools that are out there and the other yeah. Yeah, therapeutic drug monitoring tools, a lot of homegrown things. Exactly. Um, you know, there's pros and cons with that, you know, and sometimes the safety of it, uh, you, mm -hmm. you're relying on whoever's making them. So there's power in, you know, having a team with a strong QA history, but, um, but yeah, sometimes it just takes too long and maybe your need is too niche for, you know, a company to develop a solution for you. So, um, mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways that would be a helpful thing, um, that I haven't focused attention on now, but I think you're absolutely right as far as, you know, a next uh, step up in a, a career, I think that would be a big asset for me. Well, you have been someone who has had this kind of urge to reinvent yourself, to kind of micro pivot, change highways, if you will, going from critical care to pediatrics to, you know, health information. So that's what I'm curious about, like what highway you may enter next. And maybe you're happy, maybe you don't know, but mm -hmm. just curious if, if there's something on the horizon you're interested in dabbling in. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I am honest that I do enjoy my job now. I think this is a, a good fit for me um, where I am in life. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I do wonder, um, you know, having gone through some of these career transitions before it's hard not to wonder what's the next step. Um, I think it would be very exciting to work on kind of a ground up new development, um, to kind of start from scratch instead of using software that you know, people have worked on for so long. Um, so that could be a broader solution than just a healthcare related solution. Um, or it could be things more like global health. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. very curious, kind of your experience with public health you know, where you think IT and data and informatics fits in with that and, you know, yeah. where more focus can be paid uh, to help with some of these bigger problems that are, you know, much bigger than just a yeah. health system. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, connectivity between different systems, I think is key. Bridging inpatient and outpatient. So data becomes available in both. Like right now, if you have a hospital with an electronic medical record, then that stays within that system. But if a patient switches to another system, another hospital, to a public, to a private, to a community setting, then everyone has their own medical record and they don't talk to each other. So it creates, you know, it, it's inefficient and creates redundancies and um, it does not benefit our patients. Yeah, that's so, absolutely I, true. I mean, like, for example, allergies, like if you identify someone, oh, you don't actually have a penicillin allergy, and you take that label off their chart and they leave, then the community pharmacy still has it. The other hospital still has it. Um, so, yeah. yeah, so it's just the communication, I think, would help with public health. Um, and I wonder if artificial intelligence has a role here. What, you know, do you, do you have any, use AI at all in your current job function? Mm -hmm. I myself don't use AI, but we have started to introduce AI and in some of our clinical decision support. Um, and so that's something maybe as basic as helping to run through progress notes to try to detect if 
um, you know, something's been documented there that shouldn't be. So that could, you know, to your allergy point, could be something like that where we need to update allergies and we could help use alerts to uh, suggest that from some AI scanning of the chart. Um, but that's something that I don't have a lot of experience with um, and think is a really interesting uh, next step in kind of my my work, um, being able to use this as kind of a sidekick um, to help uh, kind of minimize the manual build perhaps that I have to work on. Um, but it's interesting that there are so many vulnerabilities of AI still that it could be mm -hmm. a, a little tricky um, in how you implement that. Um, so that kind of goes back to some of the big data too, to be able to monitor uh, how things are performing too, and kind of really how you're influencing your system. As a health informaticist, you get asked about AI and chat GPT and how they're changing medicine and pharmacy. Yeah, I do thoughts? sometimes. Yeah, I do get asked about that sometimes. Um, I mean, I think on a purist level, it sounds so powerful. It sounds so meaningful to be able to, you know, take some of the human aspect out um, and be able to, you know, do more. Um, but yeah, I do wonder if it's just a little too soon to be implementing real tools with decision making, um, where, you know, we really still need some of that clinical judgment. Um, but I think we, you know, kind of like I said, sidekick before, you know, we can use it maybe as a first pass for something that then helps uh, provider focus attention rather than really using it to, uh, you know, force care or make decisions in lieu of a clinician or, you know, clinical decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I played around with chat GPT a lot and mm -hmm. I would ask it questions, you know, general medical questions. And sometimes the answer was ludicrous, it sounded good. It was polished, but if you know anything, you know, it's clearly wrong. But then sometimes I would ask it questions that require a lot of expertise, like, what are the PKPD breakpoints for ravacycline when treating a multi-drug resistant gram-negative bacterial infection? And then it would have really good answers. And I didn't know why that was other than like a lot of people like us are doing research in those fields and publishing and it's pulling from those papers. But mm -hmm. um, so it's fun to play around with. Um, I don't know how we're going to use it or not use yeah. it, but I think it has to be embraced kind of like you know, the field of radiology, I don't know, now 10 years ago, where computers were, had a higher sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing pneumonia based on a chest x-ray compared to some radiologists in some studies. And the radiologists were like, let's not fight this, let's embrace it. And they incorporated it into the work uh, maybe even global work in particular, and then they moved on to more sophisticated things where computers didn't do um, well. And so I think pharmacy should follow that model as well. Um, but we'll see. There's a lot of unknowns, like you say. Yeah, I do think it's a really interesting point when you when you talk about um, moving on to more sophisticated things. Like, I, I hope that we can support our you know professional community in moving on to those more sophisticated things. Um, Otherwise, you either have people who don't have the right training um, going into those roles um, or people that just don't find that they can perform those jobs anymore. Um, so that's where I, I do kind of wonder if, you know, we need to be a little careful on how we implement some of those things um, and kind of really where the measurable value is of a human being involved in that as well. Yeah, I agree. What excites you about your field and, and some project or something, anything that's in your near future? 
Yeah, I, I do think I'm so nerdy in the optimization part of it to combine med safety and optimization. Um, it's hard for me to describe the enjoyment that I get out of smart pump work. And I do think that that comes from working in the ICU and seeing nurses in a really fast paced, high stress situation. And I realize that if there's one click that can save them, that, you know, that or one more alarm that, you know, is silenced in a meaningful way, that that's something that really can change their workflow to focus on the work that they do. Um, so it, it sounds so technical and boring to most people, but I really have this like strong passion for, you know, making some of those connections between a, you know, front patient carrying, uh, a patient carrying device um, or a, a nurse in the electronic health system to make that as smooth as possible is something that I, I just really enjoy when we can make that a more efficient process. I get it. Yeah, because you were in those units and you saw all the different steps yeah. it took to do the right thing. Can you right. give an example? Of the smart pump type of a mm -hmm. thing? Yeah, so I think it's anything from knowing what your guardrails are on specific drugs and how you're using those in certain environments. So what's considered a high dose that you might want to prompt a nurse to say, are you sure you're actually using that the correct way? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Or having units of measure that are actually what's you know, written for in your electronic health system um, and making that programmable for the nurse. Um, it's really some simple things that does take some manual work on the on the backside to, you know, make things work efficiently. Um, but those are the small things that if you just, you know, can cross out one step of a manual click that a nurse can just get things done so much faster and, you know, get a patient in a better place um, when sometimes seconds are really what matters. Mm. I think that everyone could relate to what you're saying and feel how important that is and how impactful that is to patient care and to frontline providers. But I also think you're doing it so behind the scenes, behind the scene and creating these things for downstream benefit. But you're like this silent superhero in the background. And is that okay with you to be like this silent <laughs> superhero in the background? Uh, often it is credit? not. Yeah, often it's not. I, I do think that it's a, a satisfier for me. Like we all have different personality types, but I do love getting some positive feedback. You know, that does warm my heart. Um, I do think that I'm very fortunate to work with a close group of clinicians that, you know, I hear that feedback. Um, mm -hmm. But I think often IT is the unsung hero. Um, and I learned mm -hmm. yeah, pretty early in my career, in this section of my career, I guess, um, that no feedback is sometimes the best feedback. <laughs> And so sometimes it is frustrating, you know, when you work hard on a project and you deliver a really great solution um, and maybe you don't hear back after implementation, but oftentimes that's like a really good sign because, you know, we know that 95% of feedback is going to be the people who are complaining about something that needs to be fixed. Um, you're probably not going to get a lot of people taking time out of their day to say, oh, this actually worked really well for me. They're just going to go about their job because that's, you know, the end goal at the end of the day is for them to be able to do things smoothly. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a, a challenge, but I do think I'm local, uh, sorry, uh, lucky to have, you know, kind of the core group that I work with uh, be able to provide some of that feedback and some of these tools where I can kind of monitor performance on some of the tools also. Um, it's fun to be able to, to see things that are working well, even if it's not, you know, a, a face uh, coming back to you with, with some positive feedback. Yeah, I just feel like it's such a dramatic shift from you being the guy who's running to the codes, 
you know, to being the person who's like sitting on a computer in the background, making those codes run smoothly or making the ICU workflow run smoothly and not hearing anything back. It, I think one thing we could all learn from this is we need to thank the silent mm -hmm. partners who are doing all this on the back end. So let me just be first to thank you for that, Robert. Uh, thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> Um, are you glad you became a pharmacist now that you've figured out your niche? I think that I am. I think pharmacy has, has turned out to be a good career for me. Um, it is interesting when I think about the next generations and what advice, you know, we would give. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's tricky if I would, you know, say that this is for everybody. Um, when I was thinking about our conversation, I, I wondered if you had thoughts now that you're talking with some of these people about um, maybe what uh, keeps people in clinical pharmacy so that, you know, when they're thinking about what options they have, whether or not that's even pursuing pharmacy at all, um, you know, if you have any thoughts on what keeps people happy in clinical pharmacy or in pharmacy as a whole. Yeah, I, there are so many things that I miss about my job as a clinical pharmacist, but the number one thing is similar to what you said, working in a team collaboratively to come up with a decision that you implement and you see the results. There's something so rewarding about that, and I miss that deeply. And I don't know, maybe I'll go back to clinical pharmacy, I don't know. I, I felt like, for me, um, a day turned into a week, turned into a year, turned into 10 years, and I didn't want to spend another 10 years doing the same thing. It was more about seeing what else was out there and um, using different parts of my brain and working on more like zoomed out humanitarian projects. So that's why I wanted to consider working for the government. So yeah, it is a little bit like what you've done in that you work on big programs. You're not going to be the one who's thanked. You're kind of working behind the scenes to make things happen. And I think I'm okay with that at this phase of my career because I've done the clinical thing and now I want to do mm -hmm. something slightly zoomed out from there. Yeah, I admire that. Um, I do think that's something that probably should be talked a little bit more about when we talk about the longevity of a career, um, maybe particularly yeah. in pharmacy, but clinical pharmacy too. Um, and maybe, you know, uh, some of the senior, senior leaderships and organizations can, you know, think about more roadmaps for people to think about over their careers. Um, because I, I think I hear what you're saying that, um, you know, working for five or 10 or plus years uh, as a clinical pharmacist, I think a lot of people end up itching for, you know, something something a little different or a different angle on, on their job. Mm -hmm. um, so that'd be yeah, some interesting advice. You yeah, You put it really well. We do need more of a road back. I do feel like a weirdo um, because I'm kind of going outside of the box and that's why when I see other people who went outside the box to pave their own way I find it so inspiring and I think we could all get together and help each other and that's what we're trying to do here today yeah I love it and we're all weirdos so you're not you're not alone in that so <laughs> <laughs> yes this is why we're friends <laughs> I agree <laughs> um so Robert thank you so much I can't thank you enough for being here um Super inspiring, super interesting what you've done with your career. Thank you, Monica. I really appreciate it. Thanks for shedding light on you know the options that people might have as they think about the future in their career. Yes, the sky's the limit, right? I agree. Thank you for listening to Career Reconstituted. 
how these pharmacists turn their job into a dream job. My name is Monica Mehta. The intro music is Balanced by MindServer Unlimited from Epidemic Sound, and the cover art graphic was made by Daphne Kiplinger. To our listeners, thank you for spending your hour with us in a world where time is a rare commodity. If you have any comments, questions, or recommendations for interviewees, please get in touch via Spotify on the episode's note page or Instagram. Look for handle career underscore reconstituted. And if you like the show, please subscribe or leave a rating. Until the next time, bye friends.